morning and uh, welcome to New Hope Fellowship, brothers and sisters. And, and for those of you who are, are new here, we're just very, very thankful that you're with us and um, that you've come to join us on a Sunday afternoon to worship. And uh, we are going to be taking the Lord's Supper at the end of this service. So I just want to, I, I just want you to, to be aware of that. Um, sometimes it helps if you just, if you know that, but maybe, maybe even prepare for the Lord to be preparing you in this time. In this, in this time, as we, as we look at the word of God, be ready. The, the Lord may do something here. He may want to help get your heart prepared to remember what he has done. Um, so, okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We've, uh, we've been here for, I don't know, four or five weeks now in 1 Corinthians, and we're watching Paul uh, kind of set the scene and start to address a church that's, that's slipping off track. And um, they're proud. It's a proud church. They're proud of things that God has given to them, and they've they've kind of forgotten that God gave them some of those things. They're very it's a very gifted church, apparently. We learn in the in the first chapter, and uh, they've they've become forgetful of where these things are coming from, and they're and they're not acting in humility towards one another. There's divisions taking place. We're already getting the picture of a, of a of a church that's that's unhealthy. And yet Paul says, I, I, I'm sure that God is going to persevere this church. And so he, he comes to this church and he's now starting to confront them. And the first thing that he does is, uh, well, the first main topic that he jumps into is a topic in which he says, I want you to understand how important it is that you embrace the foolishness of this gospel. So this is what we talked about last week. We learned in verses 18 to 25 that, that uh, the cross must maintain a certain foolishness in the eyes of the world if the cross is going to maintain its power. We learned that through the faithful proclamation of a seemingly foolish message, which appears to be madness to the world, because it proclaims a crucified Messiah as God's means of salvation. Through that message, God actually saves people. And by saving people in such a counterintuitive way, by saving them in a way that the so-called wise ones of this world would have never dreamed up, by executing a salvation that is completely imperceptive when viewed according to worldly standards, God has taken the wisdom of this world and he's flipped it on its head so that the wisdom of this world actually becomes foolishness. So join with me, if you will, just as a reminder, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. This is what Paul says in verses 20 and 21. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God has taken the wisdom of the world and he has made it foolish. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God 
through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And the point last week was the gospel must maintain a certain level of folly if it's going to have power to save. This week, Paul's going to continue to develop this theme of God chooses to use foolishness to accomplish his purposes. And last week, the point was that the foolish message of the cross is what God uses for salvation. And this week, the main point is that God God chose to save foolish people in order to remove human boasting. In order to remove human boasting. And so we're going to start today by looking at the last verse of our section because I want you to see it right from the start. This is where we're going. Verse 31, set your eyes on it if you have a Bible. Here's the, con- here's the purpose statement of everything that Paul's going to say today. Here's the purpose. Verse 31, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're going to boast, if you're going to brag, if you're going to take pride in something, boast in the Lord. Paul's going to give you three good reasons to do it today. I don't know. Boasting, what's up? I mean, it's such a weird concept. And it's so ugly. I remember I've had a few, I've had a few glory moments in my life. And one of them was when I hit a game-winning home run in the state tournament in high school. And uh, I was like, it was like the best hit of my life. And it was just deep left center field. And uh, after, and, 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 and it, it was the seventh inning. So in high school baseball, you only play seven innings. Seventh inning, two outs. Oh, maybe there was one. Out. I don't know. The, the story keeps growing, you know. <clears throat> and uh, game winner against the, the number one seed in the tournament. We knocked him out of the tournament. And afterwards, there were like these reporters that were coming to me. They're asking me questions. I was like, this is, this is amazing. It was my glory moment. And as they're asking me about, you know, t- tell me about what was happening out there today. And all I could talk about was, was how, you know, these guys, they thought they were really good, but we just came in and we, and we proved to them that we were the stronger team. And uh, we just... Uh, we and me and me and we and 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 it was it was so unsportsmanlike and it was very proud. I was very boastful. And as I looked as I looked in the papers, which I did, I I hunted those the papers that next week. I I'm looking for like where they quoted me, and and the only things that they quoted from me were like these these very side comments that they, it wasn't it wasn't what I was really wanting them to say. What I was really wanting them to say was all this foolish stuff that I had spewed out as they were asking me these questions. And I, every time I think back on that instance, I'm like, it's, I'm very happy about the home run. And then I get really like ashamed of how I talk to people afterwards. Because I was so proud and I was so boastful. It's just so ugly. And Paul's going to give you three reasons. There's no need to boast in yourself. But I'll give you three good reasons why you should be boasting in Jesus. Why he should be the one that you're celebrating. So, 
Let me see. How's this guy going to work today? That's what I was afraid of. Hey, there it is. Okay, we got it. Okay, the background for this text. Okay, you saw in verse, in verse 31, as it is written. So I saw that. I said, okay, where was it written? You go back, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. This is the background of, the, of, of what's going on in Paul's brain, and you'll see it really clearly as we walk through this. Here's what's going on in Paul's brain as he's talking to the Corinthians. He's thinking of Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Okay, you could boast in your wisdom. You could boast in your might. You could boast in your riches. But Paul's going to give you three other reasons why you should be boasting elsewhere. This is what he's got in his mind right here. And the first reason, the first good reason why you should be boasting in the Lord is that he chose you. He chose you of all people, he says to the Corinthians. Listen to this. Chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Okay. How many were wise? Okay, I see the connection. Not many were powerful. Jeremiah says, mighty man. Not many were of noble birth. Jeremiah talks about a rich man there. Okay, when the Corinthians were being told to consider their calling, we'll come back to that word in a minute. One of the things that Paul really wants them to see is what was, your, what was happening in your life when God called you? We'll talk about what it means that he called you in a minute, but what was happening in your life? Where were you? What was going on? And in the Corinthians' lives, not many were wise. According to worldly standards, not many of them were powerful and not many were of noble birth. Wise, according to worldly standards, we talked about last week, that basically means that the, the, the wisdom of this world is a wisdom that is confined to the, uh, the, the restrictions of this age. It's, it's, it's natural man's wisdom. It doesn't have access to spiritual insight, those things which belong to the age to come. It's the wisdom of this age. Well, many of the Corinthians weren't even wise according to this age. In addition, not many of them were powerful. Here that probably just means influential. One, one commentator, Gordon Fee, says that these, this means those who carry the clout in any sociological situation. 
Not many of the Corinthians were influential people. And not many of them were of noble birth. Could indicate some sort of wealth, the family that they came from. It looks like there may have been some wealth in the Corinthian congregation. Um, We've talked about how this is kind of an entrepreneurial uh, society that they're living in. And uh, it's, it, there's, there's good reason to believe that some of them may have attained wealth, but not many of them came from wealth. And by saying not many in all three of those cases, Paul indicates that there were probably some Corinthian believers who were in these social be- situations from the beginning. There probably, there probably were some who were wise according to the standards of the world. There probably were some who were uh, powerful, influential, carried some clout in social situations. There probably were some who came from some noble families. Um, for example, Crispus, which you read about in 1 Corinthians 1.14, he was formerly a ruler of the synagogue, we read in Acts chapter 18. Or Erastus, uh, in Second Timothy 4.20, it looks like he's, he may be the city treasurer for the city of Corinth. So, so there, there are some who came from this background, but not many. For the most part, the Corinthian believers had originally consisted of a, of a different social category. And once again, Paul's going to use th- three designations to talk about what they, what they were when they were called. So when, when we're talking, he's trying to help them recall what it was like when they were called. And when he talks about it, he's going to say, God chose. And then he's going to give a designation. So there's a connection between being chosen and being called. We're going to look at those two in just a minute. But first, I just want to see what he chose. What did God choose? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. Here's what God chose. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Three categories. Those who are foolish in the world, that's who God chose. Those who are weak in the world, that's who God chose. Those who are low and despised, and he kind of sums that up by saying the things that are not, the nobodies, that's who God chooses. Remember when you were called Corinthians? He's helping them remember who they were. And who they were. I mean, this is, a, this is a loving brother giving a hard word to this church. And he says, guys, guys, you were foolish, remember? And you were weak. You didn't carry any social clout. You're the nobodies. God chose you. Why? The same two verses, Paul gives, Paul gives the reason. To shame the wise. That's why he chose the foolish. To shame the strong. That's why he chose the weak. And to bring to nothing the things that are. 
He chose the nobodies to bring the somebodies to nothing. That's why he chose. He, he's, he's dethroning the wise and the powerful and the somebodies. This is just God's MO. It's how he operates. Chooses weak things like Bethlehem. Micah 5 2. Bethlehem is too little to be among the clans of Judah. Or the fact that Jesus' mother was a virgin. His whole life, he grew up with the stigma of being a bastard. She wasn't married. Everybody knows Everybody knows Mary and Joseph were not married when she got pregnant. And unless you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, which people around them certainly weren't believing that as he's, as he's growing up, maybe his mother was. For sure his mother was. Joseph was. Everybody else? He chose a stable. It's where we keep the animals. He chose a manger. This is a feeding trough. He was the son of a carpenter. He was a carpenter. Which meant, socially, guy must be uneducated and unwise. He calls fishermen and tax collectors. Why does God do this? Why does he do this? To, to shame the wise and the strong and the somebodies. Because of all the people on the planet who could feel good about themselves, of all the people who could think that there's something special, of all the people who could possibly, possibly stand before God and have something to be proud of, you'd think it would be the somebodies. The somebodies of the world. And the ultimate reason that he takes the nobodies, chooses the nobodies, shames the somebodies, is so that no man will boast. So that nobody will boast. Verse 29. This is Paul's first big purpose statement here. He brought all these things to nothing so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. God has shamed the wise the strong and the somebodies to remove boasting from 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 uh, the boasting of all people from before God. He does not want us to be proud of ourselves. It's a rebuke both to the somebodies and to the nobodies. Okay, it's a rebuke to the somebodies in the Corinthian congregation because the somebodies might be using their somebody status still to kind of keep the nobodies in place. So it's, it's a rebuke to the somebodies to say, hey, guys, you, you, there's no room for boasting. Remember, most of, most of you are nobodies. So for the somebodies who are out there, remember, God chose all these nobodies. There's no room for boasting. Not for the somebodies, not for the nobodies. So it's a rebuke to the somebodies to the people who have some sort of power in society to say, hey, lay off 
and get humble. But it's also a rebuke to the nobodies. Because the problem in Corinth is that the nobodies have forgotten where they came from. The nobodies have forgotten their background. That's why Paul's saying, guys, remember your calling. The first thing he says is, remember the, the message and the power that came through the foolish message. And now he's saying, and remember guys also, who you were when you were called. Not many of you were prominent in society. Many of you were, were the nobodies. And the nobodies have become Christians and their lives are presumably uh, better in many ways. They've, they've had some great giftedness that God has given to them. And Paul is feeling the need to remind them of where they were at when they were called. Now, we already have seen that, that the Corinthian church is starting to distance themselves from Paul. And one of the things that Paul is doing is trying to call them back to himself by saying, hey, 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 don't be all like sophisticated and, uh, and, and grand and, and proud about who you are as though you're growing in some sort of great wisdom and knowledge and these gifts make you some sort of, give you some sort of superior status. Remember what you were when you were called. Now this is so important for us as Christians to remember. It's, I mean, I've, I've seen this in, in my own life. It, when, we, when, when we come to Christ, there is a brokenness, there is a desperateness. There is a knowledge of need. And then he starts bringing about healing. And you just fast forward that 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, and if you're not mindful of where you came from, it's easy to start thinking that, like, you're a pretty good person. Like, I came from a really wretched background of, of sexual sin and substance abuse. And if I don't remember the wreck that I was when Christ called me, when I wake up in the morning and I have a nice home that I'm living in with a healthy family and living in a great place with good friends, and I'm, I'm not living in the turmoil that I used to be living in when I was totally unrepentant and rebelling against God, if I don't remember that, this, that's dangerous for me. Next to uh, the bed in our room, we have a lamp, a lampshade. And the lampshade has a, a big tear in the side. Because very early in our marriage, I had a very bad temper. And so <clears throat> one day, I threw a punch. And by God's grace, it was not at my wife. Never, never acted violently towards my wife by the grace of God. But I would hit stuff. I hit the wall, I hit the bed, and I hit this lampshade one time. And I put a big hole in it. And it sits next, sits on my side of the bed, right next to my head. Because I do not want to forget where I came from. We're doing a marriage study right now. It's really sweet to share 
this is what God has done in our lives, and by the by the grace of God, uh, this is how our marriage looks these days, and this is how I try to serve my wife, and this is how she's helping me, and and we're, as we're describing this, there there's there's just a sense of like, wow, we we are just in such a different place than we used to be. But if I don't remember where we were, and I just start thinking about a sweet season that we're in right now, it's very dangerous for me. Brothers and sisters, we have to remember where we came from. We have to we have to be mindful of that. And what Paul is saying here is remember your calling? Remember what was happening when you were called? God chose you. So if you're going to boast... Boast in the Lord. If you're going to brag about something, brag about a God who chooses people like us. That's the first reason. The second reason that you should boast in the Lord is that God selected and called. Okay? The first reason is that the the first reason emphasizes the state we were in. The second reason here emphasizes the initiative of God. God chose. God selected. Okay, I want I want to show you this in the passage, and then I want to I want to give you some some Paul Pauline. Some I'm going to give you some of Paul's theology here, and uh, and we're going to do a couple a couple spots today. We're going to look at some of Paul's theology. And, and it's going to help make sense of what's going on here. But let me just show you, first of all, that God chose the Corinthians. You've already seen it in verses 27 and 28. Verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Verse 28, God chose what is low. So God chose the Corinthians. First thing I want you to see. Second thing I want you to see. God called the Corinthians. He called them. In verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. But even more clearly, perhaps, verse, uh, verses 23 and 24. Paul had just said, set your eyes up there, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. If Christ is going to be the power and wisdom of God for you, then you must be called. Those are the people who see Christ and go, I want him. Okay, so God chose the Corinthians. God called the Corinthians. And let me talk about calling here. What Paul's talking here is not the general call of the gospel. The general call of the gospel goes out to all people that hear the gospel when it is proclaimed. It's a general call to come to God. Some people are drawn to it. Some people are not drawn to it. This is the general call. 
But what Paul is talking about right here is some sort of calling that enables you to see Jesus for who he really is. This is different. Those who are called among Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what Paul is talking about here is the kind of call that comes to some of those people who hear the general call. Only some of them. This is referred to as the effective calling. So you could, you could write these two terms down if you want, if that's helpful for you. The general call and the effective call. General call goes out to anyone who will listen. Effective call only goes out to some. When the general call goes out to everybody, the effective calling goes out only to those whom God chooses. And when the effective calling goes out, people see the glory of God in the gospel. And without fail, without fail, they joyfully and quite willingly come to Jesus. Nobody is ever saved apart from being chosen and effectively called. Both of which are instigated by God alone. So the clearest place where this is seen, probably, is in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. You see Paul kind of putting his theology together. What you're seeing here is Paul's theology coming out as he's talking to the Corinthians. Let me help you see the structure of it, and this will make even better sense. He uses even a harder word here. We're going to talk about this someday. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there's a, there's a connection. There's a link. They call this the golden chain. There's a link between being chosen, or in the words of, of Romans chapter 8, being predestined, a link between being chosen and being called. If God chooses you, then he calls you effectively. Okay, So God chose the Corinthians, and he effectively called the Corinthians, and the point is this. It was God, Corinthians, it was God, not you who ultimately decided and accomplished your relationship with Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 30. And because of him, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. God is the reason you're in Christ. He chose and he called you. And if it weren't for that, you'd still think Jesus is the bastard son of a carpenter in uh, a carpenter and, and his wife in Galilee. And somehow this man became the most influential person in human history, but it's all a lie. That's how you would perceive it if God had not chosen you and called you. He chose you and called you, and because of him, verse 30, you are in Christ Jesus. So if you're going to brag, if you're going to boast, boast about a God who takes the initiative and opens the eyes of people who don't care a thing about him. That's your natural state. You do not care about God. 
If you're going to boast, boast about a God who takes the initiative to reveal to you who he is, even though you don't care about him. To which God responds, I don't care if you don't like me. I don't care if you don't want me. I choose you. And I will call you. And when I do, I will show you what's really happening at that old rugged cross. And you will see the glory that I have hidden there. And you won't be able to resist putting your hope in my son because I will show you and you will see that he is exceedingly beautiful. That's what happens when God calls a person. He reveals to them the glory in Jesus. And if it weren't for him doing that, you wouldn't be in Christ. Consider your calling. God chose, God chose, God chose. Verse 30, because of God you are in Christ Jesus. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Okay, that's the second reason that the one who boasts should boast in the Lord. The first reason is that he chooses you and me. The second reason is that he is a chooser and he is a caller. And it's because of him that you're in Christ. The third reason that you should boast in the Lord is that you are in Christ. Verse 30. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and and redemption. Okay, so the first thing I want to do here is point out that Paul has either listed four or three benefits of being in Jesus. People differ. He's either listing four. Four things or three things? When he says, Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So the first way that we could, this is the first way that people will will interpret this. Jesus became to us, you are in Jesus. Let's start there. You are in Jesus, who became to us wisdom. And then perhaps Paul is now elaborating on what he means by God's wisdom. Namely, Jesus became for us righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That's what I mean by wisdom. That's the first way you could interpret it. This is the way I go with it. The other way that you could interpret it is this. Jesus became for us four things. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Um, For our purposes, it doesn't matter too much which way you go which is convenient. But I'll, I'll just share with you how I read this. Um, and then I'll point out what's most, what's most important for what we're wanting to point, point out here. Jesus becomes to us God's wisdom. The, the, the whole argument is floating around the wisdom of the world being made foolish and the wisdom of God accomplishing the transformation of the world's wisdom into foolishness. So there's a contrast between God's wisdom and the world's wisdom that's taking place. So I I just think Paul is saying 
What Jesus did is God's wisdom. You are in Jesus. Jesus became God's wisdom. Jesus is the way that God responds to the wisdom of the world. You are in Jesus. And because of that, in this wise act of God in sending his son, you have gained three things. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption in Jesus. Okay, so if that's not what's going on here, that's okay. Tack wisdom on top of it. The point would be the same. In Jesus, you've gained something that you cannot provide for yourself. And it's because of God that you're in him. Righteousness. Let me just define these. Righteousness. Jesus has performed on our behalf everything that God demands of us. He is righteous. He is worthy. The righteous one has righteousness. You're in Jesus, so he becomes your righteousness. Okay? So this this is how I'm taking it. Here's God's wisdom. Jesus is righteousness for you if you're in him. Jesus is your sanctification, your holiness. This is, you, you, this is being set apart, has ethical implications. Because you're in Jesus, you have been set apart. Thirdly, your redemption. This is the idea that um, you have been freed from some form of slavery at the cost of at, some ex- at the expense to someone, you have been redeemed. These things are yours because you're in Christ, and Jesus is the one who has in himself provided for you what you could not have possibly provided for yourself. If you want to throw wisdom in the circle, oh, okay, that's fine. Fine with me. Um, does that make sense? You following that? Jesus has provided for you what you cannot provide for yourself. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord because the Lord is the one who gives you righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. You can't provide this for yourself. If you were ever a moralist, you realize you cannot provide righteousness for yourself. You have to be in Jesus, the righteous one. So, this is a good time to just take a moment and talk about what it means to be to have an identity in Christ. Okay? We've all heard those terms probably. It's actually kind of a popular phrase right now to to have an identity in Christ. And um I have a a little bit of a concern with how people talk about it in the circles that I've been in over the last several years. Not because it's not true that people don't have an identity in Christ. The problem is that the in Christ part of it drops off. Very, very quickly, actually. That's that's my concern, is that in Christ doesn't receive the emphasis. And in Christ is the key to the entire discussion. 
There is no identity that you want to lay a hold of. There's nothing, there's no identity that you want any part of that is not Christ's identity. Your identity is an identity that you have because you are in Christ. Jesus Christ is the new definition and source of our identity. What can be said about us can only be said because of our union with him. So, for example, you are the light of the world. Okay, this is, you know, identity. Do you know why you are the light of the world? It's because in John 8:12 Jesus said, "I am the light of the world." And you're in him. That's why you're the light of the world. Or you are a holy temple in the Lord. In the Lord, you're a holy temple. Why? Because Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the temple. You know why you're the temple? Because you're in the Lord. He's the temple. You are all sons of God. Galatians 3. You are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs according to promise. You are a child of God. You are a child of Abraham. You are an heir to the promises. You want to know why? In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Paul says in the same verse. If you've put on Christ, and if you are Christ's, then you are sons of God. Your being an heir is because you are a co-heir with Jesus. And Paul kind of sums it up here really well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So any spiritual blessing that you have, any identity that you have, it's because you're in Christ. So when you think about your identity before God, we should not only be mindful of the fact that our identity is derived from Christ's identity, but the emphasis should fall upon who Christ is since he's the one in whom we now reside. When I pray, I don't tend to come in my God-given identity without placing the emphasis on who Jesus is. So I don't, I don't say, Father, please listen to your royal child. Please hear the prayers of your forgiven and righteous saint. I am a royal priest, as you know. And I am the salt of the earth, and I am the light of the world. I have not said anything untrue or unbiblical in saying that. But I never pray that way, and neither neither do any of us. Nobody prays that way, but it makes a good point. The point is that there's something inappropriate and out of place when we emphasize our God-given identity in a manner that's disconnected from the very person to whom the identity belongs. 
it's far more appropriate and consistent with the scriptures to pray like this. Father, please hear these requests that I bring to you in the name and identity of your righteous and blameless servant, Jesus Christ, in whom I stand confidently forgiven and blameless before you because of his cross and because he is my righteousness. The great danger in not having a Christ-focused sense of Christian identity is that the identity issue, and this is, this is the danger that I see in it, the identity issue can subtly become focused on creating a high sense of self-worth. Can subtly become focused on developing a high sense of self-worth. The desire to understand who we are according to God becomes a way of fueling the desire to be significant. And the problem with that is that it encourages us to build our emotional and our spiritual habits, our sense of security, our sense of purpose, our sense of stability, not with our eyes and our hearts focused in on and valuing who Christ is, but with our attention fixed on ourselves and the importance of who we are as God has created us to be. There's a subtle difference in those two. Our emotional and our spiritual health is not being driven by a focus on and worship of Jesus, but by a sense of God-given self-worth. It's God-given. But when, you're, when your sense of security comes from some inward-looking sense of value that God has given to you, your eyes are off the one who gives it to you. It's kind of like focusing on the moon when you're talking about the beauty of its light and not even recognizing that it's coming from the sun. Now, let me affirm, brothers and sisters, let me affirm to you, you you are valuable. You are valuable in the sight of God. Your kids should know that they are valuable to you. Your spouse should know that they are valuable to you. But you're not nearly valuable enough to sustain the health of your spiritual life. You are not made to meditate on who God made you to be. That's not what keeps your heart alive. It's not what keeps you feeling a sense of purpose and drive and confidence. The Bible simply does not encourage us to make ourselves, even our God-given identity in Christ, the object of your meditation and appreciation. Every thought you have of you should be met with a hundred thoughts of Jesus. Every thought you have of your identity should have a hundred thoughts about who Christ is because he is your new identity. It's him. The better you know him, the better you know you. So just keep your eyes up on him. Every time you stop and contemplate who you are, I encourage you for the sake of the health of your soul, remind yourself that you are only who you are because you have been united to King Jesus. The goal of recognizing your identity in Christ is not for the sake of building your own self-worth. This is, this is, the, this is the trouble with it. This is, this is what we're told 
is strengthening us. You focus on your identity in Christ, and that will give you a sense of, of, of self-worth and significance. And that's what you need. And I'm saying it's, that's not what you need. It will give you a sense of self-significance, but that's not what you need. That's not what you're made for. Your heart doesn't need to feel a sense of significance. That's not, what gonna, that's not what's going to stabilize you. That's not what's going to heal your heart. That's not what's going to heal the brokenness of year after year after year of your father talking to you that way. That's not what heals. A sense of self-significance is not what brings about the redemptive power of Christ. The redemptive power of Christ, the healing work of the Spirit, the stabilizing of the soul takes place when your eyes are on Jesus. He changes you. He moves you. He moves the heart so that you're filled with joy. You're filled with worship. You're filled with awe. You look at His mercy. You look at His power. You look at His strength. You look at His grace. And as you see it for what it is, your heart changes. That's what you need. And that's why you should think about the fact that you are in Christ. Just get your eyes up on Him. And He'll heal you. That's how it works. Boast in the one whom you now have as your righteousness because he is your righteousness. Boast in the one in whom you are now set apart for God's purposes because he is your sanctification. Boast in the one who has given up his own life as a ransom in order that you might be redeemed from sin and death. Boast in the Lord. He chose us. Boast in the one who chooses people like us. Boast in the one who takes the initiative to pursue and ensure that we have a relationship with God. He chooses and calls you. Boast in the one in whom you have a whole new identity. He's placed you in Christ. It's because of Him. Let's give God the glory. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. It's what the Corinthians were failing to do. And in three ways, Paul is saying, please people, please people, please people. It's all about Jesus. For your own good, for the health of your own soul. It's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Heaven, we thank you that your word is powerful. And I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, take it and apply it to our hearts, work it in, massage it in, even now as we take just a few minutes here prepare our hearts for communion. Take these words. Whatever is not of you, please remove it. And whatever is of you, whatever, whatever is your word for us this morning, work it in, even now.